If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. I invite you uh, to take those as you have need. And when you have found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear, read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, this is the word of God. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we have, as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling place for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there, rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord your God will choose in one of your tribes. And there observe everything I command you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for this reading and hearing of your word. It's truth, these ancient words that we hold in our hands, that we read, that our ears hear. Words that have guided your people through the centuries and through the millennia. And now, Lord, they guide us and they give us hope as we make our way through this world. So we pray now that you would bless your word to our hearts. We pray now, Spirit of God, that you would give us understanding of your truth and that you would bring the transformation that needs to come to each of our lives. So we submit ourselves now to you and to the truth and the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. And be seated. As we saw last week, chapter 12 in Deuteronomy begins the section of the law code for this book. And it extends from chapter 12 for the next 15 chapters up until verse 26. God, through his inspiration of Moses preaching to these people as they've gathered on the plains of Moab, has impressed upon them the importance that they obey the law, the law that they are getting ready to hear from Moses. The law that God uses to to, to guide their lives and protect their lives in the promised land. The law that when they obey it will bring blessing to their lives. Blessed being the condition that God wants 
for his people. And so by giving the law and commanding obedience to it, God is saying this, I am for you. I'm on your side. I want you to make it safely and blessedly and abundantly. David writes in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. See, you and I, all of us live in the valley of the shadow of death. Death is going to come to each and every one of us. We just don't know when and where. I have a very good friend who said recently, you know, there are so many ways for a person to die. And it's true. This world, as we walk through it, is a dangerous place, a fearful place in the ancient world. They never knew what animal or what bandit was hiding in the rocks and the cliffs as they passed through that valley, valley of the shadow of death. What's the rod? What's the staff that God, our great shepherd, would use to guide his people safely through that valley of the shadow of death to the table that he has prepared for them, where he will anoint their heads with oil and where they will dwell with him forevermore? What's the rod? What's the staff? His law, his word, his code. It's the guidebook to lead his people and protect his people and guide his people safely on their walk through this world. And what's the command that stands at the very head, the very beginning of the law? The section of the book of Deuteronomy. Look in verses 4 and 5. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. The very first command that God gives his people concerns worship. If God doesn't put his command to worship, and God doesn't put his regulations about worship at the very head of the list of his commands for no reason at all. He puts it there to emphasize to his people that above all else, above all else, and yes, before all else, we must be worshipers of the one and only true and living God. Before all else, above all else. And so each of us this morning have to ask ourselves what place worship holds in our lives. And how the place we give worship compares to the place that God gives worship. Is it really that important? Is it really most important? God thinks so. The Westminster divines after him thought so as well. Because they wrote the first question in the catechism. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's worship. Not worship as you and I define it or necessarily design it, but worship as God defines it for us. As we saw last week, there is one God who has one place and one way, His way. As we saw last week, life is found only in Him and with Him and outside of Him and apart from Him. There is no life. There is only death. Once again... Tim Keller has been listening to my sermons. It's true. 
And I'm going to talk to him about it the next time I see him. Because he tweeted this on Friday after my sermon from last week. And this is what he tweeted. The gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. Right? One God, one way, one place. It's his way. So if you and I are truly loving people, we must hold out the hope of life only in Christ. We must not tolerate in our lives or allow others to tolerate in their lives hope for life anywhere else because it's false hope. So too, we must worship God, the God of life, the God of hope in the way that he commands us to worship. Now, this would be disheartening indeed if worship were distasteful, if it were an unpleasant activity, if worship was like that awful medicine that our parents used to make us take, not because we wanted to, not because we asked to, not because we liked it, but because they told us we had to, because it's good for you. So what do we do? We opened our mouth, we pinched our nose, and we swallowed it down. One would think when one observes the faces of worshipers, that it was like that medicine. (laughs) The, The dour faces, the indolent, lethargic attitude during worship. You don't want to do it, but somehow you know it's good for you, and so you have to do it. And for those leading in worship, it's almost like saying, come on, y'all, open your mouth, take your medicine. It's not the way worship is supposed to be. If you and I aren't eager to worship the Lord together, it's not because there's something wrong with worship. It's because there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with the way we view worship. The first truth that we have to understand when we come to worship and talk about worship this morning is that worship is a joyful response to the goodness of God. Worship is a a joyful response to the blessing of God. Look in verse 7. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 12, and there, in the place that God chooses, rejoice before the Lord your God. Verse 18, in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place the Lord your God will choose, you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Clearly, if we're listening to the words that God speaks to us, we know that worship is to be joyful. But we can go beyond the words, the specific words that are written here, to the, to the festal spirit uh, of these worship rules and regulations. It's about feasting. It's about eating and drinking together in the presence of the Lord. When you and I get together to eat, not bologna, not a grilled cheese sandwich, But when we get a group of people together to eat and we put on a big spread and we really give it our all, what do we call that? Call it a party. You know, it's a lot of fun. We enjoy being together, eating and drinking together. That's what worship is. Eating and feasting in the presence of the Lord. We think again of Psalm 23. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my nation. My cup runneth over. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A feast is the event toward which all history is moving. Isaiah predicts it in chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. 
a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, the day of the feast, Behold, this is your God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus says in Matthew 22, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. As Jesus was celebrating the Passover, what we've come to call the Last Supper with his disciples, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 19, Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. Invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. True blessing for those invited to the feast of God. Worship carries with it this festal spirit. The spirit of celebration of a great feast. And so it seems clear to me that the attitude that we should all have when we worship is an attitude of joy. I hate to pop the Presbyterian bubble. Or perhaps I should say, thaw the block of ice. But guess what joy and rejoice means in Hebrew? Joy and rejoice. That's what it means. It means to be cheerful. It means to brighten up. Really, it means to brighten up. Did I ever tell you about the mother and daughter that I knew? who loved the Lord. Both of these ladies were older ladies. The mother was really, really old when I knew them. But they worshipped in a Presbyterian church that required a sustained, somber reverence. Facial expression was not encouraged. Neither was any body motion because, well, our joy is too deep to express. Well, these two saints of the Lord were so full of joy in the Lord, they couldn't contain it. So while remaining sensitive to their worship surroundings, they took their hymnals and they used them as a shield. And behind their hymnal, they raised their hands and they closed their eyes. (gasps) And they sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And their hands were up behind their hymnal. I saw it. I saw it all. Thankfully, the elders of the church didn't see it, so it was all okay. So on the outside, I'm, I, I, I'm doing this, but on the inside, I'm looking at them going, whoo, whoo, you go, girls, you go. It was wonderful. You know, I, I need help in reconciling that sustained, stoic, stolid practice in worship with Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I get happy about that. Do you? 
Worship is a joyous response to God's blessing. J.G. McConville writes in his commentary, the picture of worship as community feasting and rejoicing is one of the hallmarks of Deuteronomy's depiction of Israel before God. The feasting is in itself a participation in the blessings given. Israel at worship, in obedience, togetherness, prosperity, and joyful feasting is a cameo picture of the covenant people in active and harmonious relationship with God. See, the greatest blessing and the greatest joy in worship being that God has not hidden himself from us. It's that God has revealed himself to his people. Look in verse 5. God says, you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. A place among his people where his name will dwell. Wow, that's reason to rejoice. God with us. And though we know that God doesn't have to, we have seen through these last weeks in Deuteronomy that God often repeats himself when he wants to emphasize his message. So look in verse 11. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling place for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you. Then in verse 21. If the place where the Lord chooses to put his name is too far away for you, for you, then there are more instructions. Over and over, God is putting in front of his people his name and the choice of his place where his name will dwell. His name represents all he is. It is God's self-disclosure. Moses is preaching right now before these people on the plains of Moab. And what does Moses remember? He remembers his very first encounter with God at the burning bush. And he remembers asking God at that time in that place, Lord, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And now, God talks about a dwelling place among his people for his name. Because his name represents all that he is. The parts of him we know. The parts of him we are yet to discover and understand and experience. And so the name of God is like this enormous container. The name of God is like this enormous container, and it's filled with pieces of paper that describe who God is and what he has done. And in worship, we pull out those pieces of paper, and we look at them. Perhaps we pull out the very first piece of paper in there, and we open it, and it reads, Eternal. And we remember Genesis one. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hover, hovering over the waters. There he was, our eternal God. We pull out another piece of paper and on it we read Creator. And again we remember Genesis 1 in the beginning. God created. God created the heavens and the earth. We pull out another piece of paper and it calls him 
covenant maker. And we remember the covenant he made with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree that I tell you not to eat of. And you will live. You will have life. Adam and Eve disobeyed. And we know the rest of that story. So we pull out another piece of paper. And we read on that piece of paper, God is, his name is, promise maker. Because he said to the enemy, the one who tempted Adam and Eve into sin, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The first promise of the gospel. We pull out another piece of paper with Noah and we say, oh, covenant maker two. And then we pull out another piece of paper about Abraham. Ah, covenant maker three. That's who God is. And then we pull out a piece of paper and on this one reads, Savior, deliverer from slavery and bondage. Because that's what God did for his people as he led them safely out of Egypt. And then we pull out another piece of paper and it reads guide because that's who God is for his people. He led them. With a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then we read, pull out another piece of paper. We read on it, provider, because that's who God is. Manna in the desert. Quail in the desert. Water when they were thirsty. But God is not static. He's not only a God of the past. He is the ancient of days, but he does not retire. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. And when these people gathered now on the plains of Moab... When they take over the promised land and the abundance of it, when that land is no longer a potentiality for them, but an actuality, they'll put another piece of paper in that big container for the name of God that reads, Gracious Giver of Good Gifts. And when they, because of their own sin, are taken into captivity to Babylon, God is once again going to deliver them. So there'll be another piece of paper that reads, Deliverer too. And because God is not static and because God is always at work, he will in the future reveal his fullness and his glory in the person of Christ. And there'll be another piece of paper for us to read that says ultimate, full, and final deliverer, savior, redeemer, and friend. And of course, the story continues through the book of Acts with more and more pieces of paper being added to the container by the church as they experience for themselves the new and exciting ways that the reality of God, who always was, always is, and always will be, is active in their lives. This is why worship is so exciting. This is why worship is to be such a time of joy because worship is about pulling out one piece of paper after another from from the name container and reading them, and rejoicing in them, as Dan did this morning, in his prayer, this is who you are, Lord. We can't get to all of them. There are too many. We only have one hour. That's all you'll allow me. One hour. But the ones that we do read, they astound us, and they amaze us. This passage is all about God's eminence, his choice to be near his people, his name, all that he is dwelling among his people. It's about his name taking on a human container, flesh and blood of the one we call Jesus, coming to live among us and to die for us. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. See, the name that now belongs to Jesus. It's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that's worship. It's about you and me keeping our eyes fixed on Christ and being awed and amazed and filled with joy again and again about who he is and who he will be as the story continues. So that's why worship, when we come together, should also be a time of great expectation to see what we have never noticed about Christ before, the name in flesh, or rejoicing about the old truths that we have known and embraced as they become fresh and new to us right now. Christ is the center of worship. And that's why true worship is marked by great joy as he continues to reveal to us more and more of who he is through his spirit that leads us and guides us into all truth and more understanding of his name. And the beauty of true worship is that the importance of me-ness and you-ness and we-ness together that normally characterizes so much of our lives in our consumeristic culture, that focus fades away when we experience the infinite name. Suddenly what I need, what I like, what I want isn't so important. As the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The glory of God's presence is so bright, it dims everything around it. This is why early Christians could worship in the catacombs. That's really worshipped. In underground cemeteries, it didn't matter. They hardly noticed that while they worshipped, they were surrounded by death everywhere. Because the presence of the living Christ was such a reality to them. The death faded in the background. What need of yours? What need of mine? What desire do we have that could outshine the glory of God as we come to unpack His name? And with each truth about the name of God, our joy increases. One truth. Here's another. Here's another. And another and another. All these glorious truths about God. And since we only have one hour, we'll never get to the bottom of it. But when we come to worship, we ought to try to empty that container, recounting the glory of God, unpacking the name of God in His presence. The psalmist writes in 118, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. I'll live to tell the goodness of God. Psalm 119. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. Psalm 79. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. So see Deuteronomy chapter 12. Rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. His name, his name, his name. Joy and his name go together. And clearly, joyful worship is a top priority to God. 
Number one, command. Where is it in your life? That's the important question. You know, what do we need to do in our lives? What adjustments do we need to make? What realignments? What lifestyle choices do we have to make so that worship is a priority to us? You know, what can we do? What can we do to make our worship more joyful? Maybe coming to worship is more like a duty to you right now. Maybe it is more like that medicine that your parents forced you to take. Why is that? Think about it. I know that we can enhance our worship experience. We can enhance our joy when we worship together by preparing ourselves to come together for worship. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, our sin blocks our ability to worship. It blocks our ability to worship joyfully. Because the sin in our lives won't allow us to focus on Christ because if we do, he'll demand that we rid our lives of it. And so when we are living in disobedience, when we're giving sin a safe harbor in our hearts, you know, stay there. When we have ill will toward others, we can't expect to be very joyful in worship. And then we miss out on the transformation that it brings. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that when we behold the glory of the Lord, that's worship, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So true worship transforms you and me. So prepare for it. I'm telling you, the preparation will be worth it. I'm going to close. I just want to emphasize once more the place that God gives to worship. He bothers to tell us that it is the one activity that we will be doing for all eternity. Other things we won't do. One day evangelism will cease. Nobody will make you feel guilty about it anymore. Because all those who are appointed to eternal life will be saved. One day we won't be doing mercy ministry anymore and you won't have to feel guilty about not going over to the east side and participating there because there will be no more suffering and there will be no more sickness. One day preaching will cease. It won't be necessary because Jesus himself will be in plain view and he will explain and exegete himself. And when he does, our worship is going to go on and on because we'll see Christ as he is. And we won't misunderstand him any longer or his intentions or his his actions toward us. No, we will not be the focus. He will be the center. The Apostle John writes this, Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. In Revelation 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them in His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's great reason for great joy and great worship. Would you agree? Right now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would do your work in our lives, that you would, if we are not already, transform us into true worshipers. Lord, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would defeat in our lives the call of our culture that even infiltrates our churches. The call that says life is all about us and what we like and what we want and what we need. Lord, forgive us when we, as a church, or corporately as churches, send that message out to people. That coming to worship is about them, and about their comfort, about pleasing them, and making them happy. Lord, that's the furthest thing from the reality and the truth of worship. And how our enemy has used it to cause confusion and dissension. And prevent us from being true worshipers. Because as we worship rightly and joyfully before you, our lives are transformed. Lord, you make us true worshipers. Who come here, Lord, with you as our focus. With you as our top priority. With giving you what you deserve from us. Pulling out one truth after another contained in your name and falling before you and standing before you and singing before you with praise and joy and thanksgiving because of the truth of your goodness and your glory and your grace. So Lord, we pray that you would truly make us joyful worshipers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.